Well, welcome along to the show. I'm Justin Briley, your presenter for the next hour and a half for Unbelievable, the uh, show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians talking. And uh, what a great show we've got lined up for you today. Uh, before we get to that, though, you may be listening this afternoon on Premier Christian Radio, on the Medium Wave in Southeast, or uh, on our DAB network, or indeed online. But uh, if you aren't listening at that time, it may be you're catching us via podcast. And uh, the address, of course, for the, the website of the program where you can get the podcast is premier.com org.uk slash unbelievable and details there of the William Lane Craig reasonable faith tour that we're involved in putting on uh, so uh, if you want to get along to hear some fantastic debates and lectures from uh, probably the world's foremost defender of Christianity in the world he's coming here to the UK from the 17th to the 26th of October and uh, I'll be hosting the first leg of the tour at Westminster Central Hall in London as he debates Stephen Law and atheist philosopher uh, in what promises to be a fantastic interaction does god exist they'll be debating and i hope you can join me for that debate monday the 17th of october at the start of the uh, reasonable faith tour more details as i say at the website premier.org.uk slash unbelievable but if you want to go straight to the info uh, and tickets page then do check out premier.org.uk slash Craig. Uh, well, that's all to come in a few weeks' time, but uh, joining me today on the programme again is a man who uh, will be joining Bill uh, for part of that tour, Peter S. Williams. Let me tell you what we're talking about on the programme today. You're unbelievable. He's nodding his head, uh, familiar with that tune, I'm sure, Peter. Uh, but uh, Peter joins us again, uh, and uh, this time looking at the show that we sort of postponed for a week from last week. Uh, uh, we're looking at a new book that Peter has recently had published, Understanding Jesus, uh, published by Paternoster Press. Uh, we're going to be taking today sceptical calls on the person of Jesus, difficult questions for Peter Williams, who is a, a Christian philosopher and apologist, and uh, we're going to be seeing what... For instance, Nazam has to say on how can Jesus be God and man at the same time. Uh, Charlie from Maine is going to be asking, what does having a relationship with Jesus Christ actually mean? Does it even make sense? Uh, Mark Maney is going to be asking whether Jesus was a failed apocalyptic prophet. So, should be an interesting show. Hope you can join us right through to the end here on Unbelievable. Well, welcome back again, Peter. Great to have you on the show. Thanks very much. Great um, to be here. It's um, good to be able to talk about this book as well. Um, uh, we were talking last week about the fact that you're involved, though, in a few weeks' time on the William Lane Craig tour. Um, in fact, the organisation that you work for, um, the Damaris, mm. is one of the co-sponsors. So uh, we're That's looking right. forward to, to all of that as well. Um, but um, uh, tell us today about mm. the book. Um, that uh, you're in to talk about today, understanding Jesus. Because um, I always think of you, Peter, as a philosopher. Yeah. And um, I always think of Jesus as being in the realm of the theologian slash biblical historian. Um, but are you sort of trying to bridge a gap in some way in, in writing this book? Yeah, I I'm, think I see this book as part of a, a movement there's been of late of philosophers writing about the historical Jesus and um, making a contribution to what's becoming known as the interdisciplinary quest for the historical Jesus, um, that there are important uh, philosophical issues involved in studying Jesus, um, not least the fact that which worldview you bring with you to studying the historical data that we have about him has a big impact on what explanations of that data you you think 
uh, make sense. And of course, when you're uh, looking at Jesus, that throws up a host of philosophical issues about, say, um, the, the possibility or believability of miracles. Mm. Um, do you take those, those uh, gospel reports of Jesus's uh, working of miracles seriously? Well, partly that depends on, say, what you make of, say, David Hume's arguments about miracles, and that's mm. a, a philosophical issue. Um, what do you make uh, of um, the philosophy of uh, testimony, which is uh, an area of um, philosophy of knowledge that I bring to uh, uh, the book before we're looking at the historicity of the gospel texts, mm. uh, what is it to think of these texts as testimony and what does the, the recent philosophy have, have to say about testimony in, in issues like, well, who carries the burden of proof? Mm. Um, should you be automatically sceptical of uh, a testimonial claim until you have independent uh, evidence for its truth? Or should you rather be automatically giving it the benefit of the doubt? Mm. Or perhaps you should adopt a neutral position. There's whole sorts of mm. debates within the theory of knowledge about those kind of issues. So I'm trying to bring some of the sort of philosophical issues and framework into um, how we go about looking at the historical Jesus. I mean, Jesus, uh, despite the fact that Christianity often gets um, a bad press uh, in the secular mm. world, um, Jesus still seems to uh, generally be considered a good guy, um, to, yeah. to be seen as a, a, a good example of um, what we should aspire to, can aspire to. Mm. Um, though I'm sure a lot of that is sort of down to people's personal perceptions and, and they may not have a very firm grasp mm. of what actually he actually said in the Gospels and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, do, do, what do you think of the public perception of Jesus? Uh, is this, do, do Christians need to get back to Jesus in some way. I don't know. Sometimes I feel mm -hmm. some Christians uh, sort of get very intense on other areas of theology, and the, uh, but, but sometimes almost forget Jesus yeah, as the, the centrality. Of I mean, that's always a great thing for Christians to come back to. I certainly really uh, personally enjoyed writing this book. Um, it took me about a year of research and writing to, to produce this and to be able to focus uh, for that amount of time uh, on serious study of... Uh, of Jesus and the historical documents and the arguments uh, about understanding him been a real joy to me uh, and has really brought me I think an increased sort of appreciation and understanding of of Jesus that's that's affected my own um, mm. spiritual life um, so I really hope that the book will will help others to do that whether they're coming at it as Christians or as non-Christians. I mean you often do address students and uh, uh, sort of take questions and that sort of thing yeah. do, what kind of questions are they asking very often about this sort of subject that i think a lot of the um, issues that particularly sort of sixth form students that i spent a lot of my time with demaris trust working with is the the kind of um theories of knowledge that they work with and lots of students will be working with what i would call a very sort of scientistic theory of knowledge kind of science is the only way to know anything um and um therefore um we we wouldn't allow in any uh, idea of knowledge of 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 a divine at all, any supernatural, mm. uh, and and so when they come to thinking about Jesus, it would automatically be on the assumption that well, we can't even if there is a supernatural, we can't know anything about it. Uh, we certainly can't make knowledge claims that include supernatural elements within them. We can't say Jesus really did rise from the dead because that would be a miracle, mm. which would be a supernatural thing, which you mm. you can't you know touch. Um, because we, we, we just have this bracketed out of anything supernatural. So that the huge impact of making a sort of 
um, anti-supernaturalistic assumption at the beginning of the study and the knock-on effect that that has uh, down the line. That's very much one of the things I, I highlight in the book, mm. uh, getting readers to, to say where are they starting from uh, and this has come up, up in recent programs. Um, for instance, mm. I don't, don't know if you caught the one uh, back in Easter with um, Mike Lacona and uh. Bart Ehrman talking about the resurrection right. of Jesus. And this was the fundamental point at which yeah. they, they came to, you know, mm. a parting mm. of ways, which is that Mike was prepared to allow for a miracle as the best explanation for yeah. the facts surrounding the resurrection. Bart Ehrman agreed with many of the facts that Mike presented, but mm. said uh, in no other discipline are you allowed to say a miracle was what caused this? So we can't allow that in this instance. You know, we, th that is a theological uh, mm. conclusion, not a conclusion of history. So where, where do you, yeah. well, how do you answer well, that? I, I think um, it's not particularly fruitful to go into these debates by deciding what labels, disciplinary labels to give things. Rather, we, we want to know whatever label we give to the study, what is actually true, what actually happened. Mm. Um, and if we come to the table with, with a, a determined idea that whatever happened, it, the one thing it certainly couldn't have been was a miracle, was anything supernatural, we've completely stacked the deck ahead of looking at the evidence and saying we're saying we're not going to allow evidence to affect in any way what we believe about reality. Mm. Um, that seems quite a, uh, a harsh kind of uh, epistemological position to take, really. Um, it's interesting, talking about Bart Ehrman, he... he Past similar comments in his debate with William Lane Craig uh, on the resurrection, well, which you can easily mm. find. And mm. he said, well, the reason the resurrection makes sense to Bill is that he believes in God. And if you believe in God, well, of course, there could be a miracle. Uh, but that assumes that there's a God, he said. Well, actually, it doesn't. All it assumes is um, a non-dogmatic -dogma form of atheism. Even if you came at, at the evidence saying, well, I don't think there is a God, but I'm open to evidence pushing me towards the belief that a miracle happened, then you might, on the basis of sufficient evidence, come to believe that a miracle happened and that therefore there must be a God. Yes. Um, so even just a non-dogmatic -dogma commitment, you know, a sort of tentative commitment mm. to an atheistic worldview should still be open to being con uh, convinced by evidence, I think. Very interesting. Um, thank you for that. And uh, if, if you want to uh, contribute to today's program, if you'd like to uh, give us your thoughts on any of the subjects, including the one that we've just had a quick uh, two-way on uh, just now, then do let us know your thoughts. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Happy to pass those on to Peter as well. Uh, don't forget, uh, well, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, UnbelievableJB is the tag uh, for both of those. Facebook.com slash UnbelievableJB at UnbelievableJB, my Twitter account, and uh, love to interact with you that way as well. Uh, all of that available, of course, including past programmes. I'll put up one or two that Peter's contributed to in the past as well at the website, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. Right now, let's get into today's programme as we take some sceptical questions on the person of Jesus. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. So uh, we've got an interesting variety today, Peter. Um, not dissimilar, you could say, uh, today to uh, what has come to be known as the Gorilla Christian format of the show with uh, David Robertson, uh, a regular guest here on the show. But um, we're particularly grilling you on, on the person of Jesus today uh, as, re as it relates to your book, Understanding Jesus. Um, 
So um, let's get into that immediately. And on the line, first of all, is Nazam, uh, who is uh, a Muslim. And uh, Nazam, obviously, Jesus is an important person in uh, the Islamic faith, as well as in the Christian one. Uh, but very different conclusions drawn as to uh, his significance and um, particularly in the area you want to address, Nazam. So um, welcome along to the show. Great Thank to have you, you here. Uh, you're, you're welcome. Um, Hello there. Well, start off, Hi. Nazam. What's what's your question to Peter on the person of Jesus? Um, basically, um, I just wanted to ask, um, but God, by definition, is meant to be infinite and self-sufficient and inter- eternal, as well as unknowledgeable, um, whereas man, by definition, is none of those things. He's mm. limited, he's weak, mm. and he has needs like food, water, and oxygen. Yeah. And um, according to Christians, Jesus is meant to be both. Um, he's meant to be both infinite as well as limited and all, all mm. knowledgeable mm. as well as ignorant at the same time. Yeah. So isn't that like an oxymoron or a contradiction in terms... And, and obviously, as a Muslim, um, it, it's one of the key aspects of this. And, and in fact, one of the reasons Islam began was, was a perceived sense of Christianity creating a sort of um, uh, polytheism uh, by, by suggesting that Jesus was God. Um, uh, and, and for you, is it just a logical contradiction as far as you can see, the idea of Jesus being both God and man, Nazam? Um, it's not just a logical contradiction as well, but also based upon historical reasons as well, like given the, the time, um, the Greco-Roman context in which Christianity grew out, it was very easily for people to take human beings as God. For example, Paul and Barnabas, when they ended up in an island, um, people took them as Zeus and um, another deity, and Paul and Barnabas corrected them and said, Okay, so, so you're suggesting if, if it happened then that people took people to be gods, it could easily have happened that Jesus was sort of mythologized but in people's minds as, as being divine. But let's take those in two sections yeah, then, I sure. think, because I think that's important sure. to, to address mm. both those mm. issues. So, I mean, coming back firstly, and, and we've got some time now to for, just leap in, Nazam, if you want to kind of ask anything. Mm. Um, but, but Peter, what Nazam says about, you know, God is... You know, all these things, mm. these attributes of God, omniscient, that has no need of anything. And yet at the same time, Christians try to suggest that Jesus is uh, a human, needing yeah. all those things. And, yeah. and how can the two coexist in, in one person? It's the... So just 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 sort sure. that one out for us okay. in the next five minutes. If in the next five minutes. Well, it, it, <laughs> it took the church um, many hundreds of years to gradually refine its uh, its definition of of the incarnation in in various creedal statements and so on. And it's the subject of of very high level um, philosophical discussion within the philosophy of religion still today. Um, uh, but let me um, pass uh, some hopefully useful comments in the brief time that we that we have. Um, I, I think the idea of God, you're quite right, this, this maximally great being, infinite in various capacities and so on, um, but within certainly the Judeo-Christian tradition, there is this idea that God made humanity in his image, that humans are, if you like, a sort of finite representation of the divinity, um, talking about making them male and female in the image, in the image of God he made them and so on. And I think that gives us a clue as to why, however startling or paradoxical the idea of the Incarnation might seem, uh, it's not actually a contradiction because, the, as it were, the concept, the, the, the outline of concept of a human 
fits within the concept of divinity. It's just a a, a finite um, concept of of what the the divinity gives the sort of the basic pattern of. Hence, of the idea that we are made in the image of God. Of God, that that's right. It's not a physical image, obviously, mm. because God is not uh, not physical in, in his essential being. Uh, and so the claim, the Christian claim about Jesus' in, incarnation is that Jesus is both uh, fully human and fully divine, one of the three divine persons of the Trinity, which opens up, obviously, particularly for in the talking Muslim context, a whole other doctrinal um, area there. Um, let me just very briefly read a, a, a quote from um, the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft uh, that I quote in my book. Um, he says, the idea that Jesus is only one person and is two persons would be a logical contradiction. Um, and the idea that Jesus only has one nature and two natures would be a logical contradiction. But the idea that Jesus is only one person but has two natures, that is a human nature and a, and a divine nature, is not a logical contradiction, hmm. uh, and that's the the Christian claim. So, it, on on the the explicit face of it, when you clarify what you're saying, it is not an obvious logical contradiction, like saying Jesus was one person and two persons, or there is a square circle. Hmm. Nizam, your thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, like, how would you then interpret, for example, when um, in Mark chapter eleven it speaks about Jesus on a certain occasion? been hungry and he saw a fig tree mm. in the distance and he went up to it to see if it had anything to eat and when he found nothing but leaves um he put a curse on the fig tree and the tree withered away so like as a human jesus it's easy to understand why he felt hungry mm. Mm. and why he didn't know that the fig tree had no food on it um but as a divine jesus Hmm. Um, why did he act upon the mistake hmm. of the human Jesus? That, that's really interesting because you, 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 you do get, obviously, lots of instances of hmm. Jesus acting in a very human way. Hmm. Um, it doesn't appear that Jesus constantly knows everything that's going to happen no. around him, uh, you know, as, that he doesn't, as, as the way that we would expect God to be able to. Yeah. So, so this is just one example of that. What, what's your response? Yes, to? well, it's an example where this two natures thing becomes very crucial because... Um, one would say that within his human nature, within his human consciousness, his his human soul, if you like, um, Jesus was working uh, to certain limitations. But that is not to say that, therefore, um, within his divine nature, he had those same limitations. It's simply that that the divine nature, as it were, is uh, is lending itself and allowing itself to act within certain self-imposed limitations within um, its incarnation in the world. Mm. Is, it, is it in some sense that it is suppressed in some way, the, the, the kind of the natural knowledge and everything else that God has, the omniscience, etc.? Well, uh, only in terms of its, its action, because one would say Jesus didn't cease being divine when the second person of the Trinity becomes incarnate, so that he, he still is omniscient as, as divine, but he is he also has a human nature, uh, and that is uh, finite and therefore is not omniscient. But the person, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, knows everything, but he has a nature 
which doesn't know everything, as well as a nature that does know everything. I'd love to spend the whole t- program talking about this. It's a fascinating area. Um, but um, I, f- I feel we should move on, um, Nazam, because you, you mentioned sort of more biblical aspects of this. And, and you, your worry, Nazam, is that, that it, it's, it could have been all too easy for people to ascribe to Jesus a divine mm. nature, given that they were prone to doing that with people like, as you say, Paul and Barnabas. Um, in, in Acts. Um, quick quick response and then we'll have Nazam come back on that. Briefly. Sure, I think a quick response to that is you, you're absolutely right when you talk about the Greco-Roman culture uh, being open to a sort of polytheistic worldview and to divinizing people. Um, and, and of course, they're not, they're not divinizing people in the sense of making them equal to the Jewish conception of, of the monotheistic God. They're divinizing people in, in, in the sense of polytheistic divinities, uh, which is a very different uh, concept. But the, the concept of Jesus being divine arose not out of a, a Greco-Roman cultural concept, uh, context, but the, the Jewish, uh, you know, firmly, staunchly monotheistic uh, cultural, uh, religio-political context, um, you know, the Jews un- under the boot of the Roman Empire, yes, but for those reasons even more sta- staunchly sort of nationalistic and, and um, uh, prepared to, uh, to be martyred yeah. for, for their, their it, it's not a, one it, god. Yeah, so which, which is why the claim is so completely yeah. unusual if, if and outlandish was, in, in that context. If there was any context which is the sort of least likely on earth for someone to mistake a fellow human being for a divinity, it's within a, a Jew, you know, that Jewish uh, context at that time. Nazan? Uh, well, I mean, the New Testament was primarily written to a Greek-speaking audience, and if you take like Jewish terminologies like um, son of God, um, being interpreted mm. or translated in a Greek or Roman context, the meaning would have been understood differently to how a Jewish or first century Palestinian Jew would have understood. Because to, to a Jew, someone being called the son of God yeah. doesn't necessarily equate divinity, whereas to a, a Greek person, it, it does equate divinity. For example, um, the Roman Caesar was taken mm. as the son of God. Mm, so, but if you told them that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ, they mm. would not be able to relate. But if you say that Jesus is the Son of God, they could now understand that Jesus was someone special or someone unique. Mm. Yes, well, I, I, I very much agree with you up to a point in a sense here um, about Son of God, but it, that's why I think it's fascinating that, that, for example, if you look at the, the Gospel reports of Jesus on trial before, before the Jewish Sanhedrin, what really um, gets him in hot water and crucified for, for blasphemy, according to the Gospel reports, is, is his use of the, the terminology Son of Man, which refers back to the the, the prophecies of uh, of the book of Daniel and, and yeah. this this son of man figure in the book of Daniel who is very much portrayed in in, in divine terms claiming God's God's right of judgment over the the Jewish court coming with the clouds of heaven which was a typical sure. Jewish apocalyptic picture of the glory of God and so on and, and Jesus you know at the very time when his life is on the line and they're they're trying to get him. Um, uh, to sort of uh, put his foot in it, he very much deliberately uh, not only meets their um, their hoped expectations of, of him putting his foot in it, but he goes well beyond and gets himself crucified for blasphemy by the Jewish Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish context yeah. that the, the, the claim is understood so and arises w- one in. One more comment, Nazam, and we'll have to move on, I'm afraid. Go, go ahead. Sure. 
Um, I mean, from a historical point of view, um, like E.P. Sanders, for example, mentions mm. that there's nothing blasphemy Jesus committed because it was not blasphemous, for example, to even predict the coming of the Son of Man, since it was already prophesied in the book of Daniel, as well as by other preachers. And if you read the whole chapter in its context, mm. you have the vision and then you have the interpretation of the mm. vision given in that chapter. And the interpretation that's given in that chapter is that the Son of Man is a personification of Israel or the saints of the Most High. And all the people of nations come and serve Israel and, and worship them or, or serve them to use the ESV translation of the word. Hmm. Well, I, 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 yeah, we may have to take more time than we have here to go into details of, of particular passage interpretations. But I, I think it's clear that Jesus applies the Son of Man to, to himself, not just a, a son, but the Son of Man. And he claims he abrogates to himself um, the divine qualities of judgment and so on, just as in various other passages, he abrogates to himself the, the divine right of forgiveness, uh, uh, accepts worship from people and, and so on. But here we're getting into the, the whole area of Jesus's uh, Im- implicit and explicit self-understanding. Well, it's been fascinating. Nazam, thank you for some really um, good questions yeah, there. And uh, thanks for, 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 for being available today to take part. Thanks. Thanks very much, Nazam. No problem. All the best. That's uh, Nazam, who uh, wanted to ask some questions from uh, an Islamic perspective on uh, Jesus' divinity. Uh, they call it a mystery, don't they, um, in many ways? But it's a mystery. I don't know. Do you, is that yeah. a, Some people get annoyed when you say, oh, it's a mystery. <laughs> we'll never know. Well, maybe uh, because, it's, you know, some people have said maybe it's a bit like the mystery of saying that light is both a wave and a particle. And we don't really know, perhaps, how to understand that yet. But we nevertheless need some sort of understanding of light that that, that keeps the data the true data to have and it's the best explanation for the available evidence um, in that sense if i could just uh, briefly pass the buck on to if anyone wants to really go into the philosophy of this i would recommend richard swinburne's book was jesus god mm. or uh, thomas v morris's book our idea of god an introduction to philosophical theology and those are two christian philosophers who've, who've gone into some depth in recent years uh, on the the logic of saying it, it it's not a, a logical uh, contradiction to say that Jesus was divine and human. Fantastic. Some uh, bedtime reading there. Yeah. If you're uh, if you, you want to get into the uh, the divinity of Christ from a philosophical perspective, fascinating stuff to, to kick off the program. Thank you very much, Nazam. Uh, Peter S. Williams, my guest on today's program for Unbelievable. We're taking skeptical questions on the person of Jesus. This is because Peter has a book out. It's called Understanding Jesus, available from Pater Noster. Going to put a link to it with the website of this program, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. And we'll be back in just a moment time with more questions including charlie in a moment asking having a relationship with jesus christ does that make any sense says charlie the atheist we'll be back in just a moment's time you're listening to unbelievable on premier christian radio we like to call ourselves the show that gets christians and non-christians talking that's exactly what we're doing on today's show as we take sceptical calls today uh, on the person of Jesus. With me in the studio is Peter S. Williams, Christian philosopher and apologist and author of the new book, Understanding Jesus. And as I said, uh, you can find that on the website, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable, if you want to have a look at it for yourself. But we've been taking calls today on uh, various uh, tricky questions on uh, Jesus. Uh, In a completely different area now, we're going to be uh, hearing from Charlie in Maine in um, 
uh, the U- USA. Uh, but uh, we'll also be hearing a little later on from Mark Maney in uh, Canada. So um, uh, an international show today uh, with me, Justin Briley, your host for Unbelievable. So um, let's get straight into this. Um, and on the line now, we've got uh, we've got Charlie. Charlie, you sometimes call yourself uh, the scepticism examiner. Tell me, why why do you call yourself that? It's a uh, it's a blog that I have that is uh, much neglected, <laughs> depending on uh, how much I have going on on my day job. And uh, uh, do you do you like to think of yourself then as someone who assesses the evidence on on both sides? That you you can be as sceptical of um, uh, you can examine scepticism as much as you can examine Christianity, or, or what is the, what is the meaning of this scepticism examiner title? For me, the the, the meaning of scepticism is that you do uh, we as skeptics do examine, you know, and are, are willing to look at our own position uh, critically, uh, step outside of it, look at it, say how could we disprove it if it wasn't true? Great. Well, I'm sure you've got a very interesting question for Peter today. Um, just before we get to that, how, how did you come into the remit of Unbelievable? How did you stumble across the show, if you don't mind me asking? I, you know, to the best of my memory, uh, about two years ago, I, I like to um, hear points of view that are different from my own. And uh, so, I, as I recall, I was just, I Googled it <laughs> and was looking for uh, discussions between believers and unbelievers. Well, various stripes. you came to the right place for that. Thank you, Charlie, and thanks for your interactions as well over on the Premier Community where you're a, a regular contributor uh, to the Unbelievable group there. If you want to uh, see uh, what Charlie's uh, doing on the conversations there, why not check it out for yourself? Um, just follow the link for the Premier Community from the, the Unbelievable webpage, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. Let's not waste any more time, though, Charlie. Uh, let, I'll hand over to you and uh, go ahead and ask your question of Peter. Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, I tried to pick a question that was relatively narrow in scope because I know that these conversations um, can go far afield, um, and I know there's very little time. Um, this particular question was trying to look at an issue that was an overlap between um, naturalism and Christianity, if Christianity were true, uh, and should provide an opportunity. It's, it's not intended as a gotcha question. Um, but it would provide an opportunity to provide evidence against the claim that Christianity isn't objectively real. Um, and it really just goes to what the impact should be if there is supernatural intervention taking place in the lives of even a fraction of the, the two billion people in the world who um, identify as Christians. Um, if knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him is objectively real, it seems like this should have an impact in, among the people who are uh, Christians, such that, for instance, the depending on who you ask, twenty or thirty thousand uh, Christian denominations out there, it seems like those shouldn't be necessary. If uh, any group of people has a relationship with the same person, especially if it's a close relationship, mm-hmm. that. Um, should have a certain familiarity among the people who know that person, such that it doesn't seem like tens of thousands of, or you know, twenty or thirty thousand denominations should be necessary. So, so and why why yeah. would that close relationship? You know, Christians will will say that they they have a close personal relationship with Jesus. Um, I've heard this my whole life. 
And why wouldn't that overcome the relatively small differences between the denominations? Hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. Um, I think out of my personal experience, I would start by saying I, I think that amongst people who claim to share that personal experience with Jesus, there is a great sense of uh, commonality and fellowship of sort of brotherhood, sisterhood in the Lord. And uh, however people will express it and how they express it does differ from sort of denomination to denomination and so on, the sort of language that people use uses and things. But I mean, one of the joys of, of my life as a sort of itinerant Christian philosopher apologist, I get to travel around the country a lot and various people put me up overnight on their, their couch when I'm speaking at this church or that Christian union and so on. And I do have this this great sense of the the, the family of Christ, um, and that being the central uh, core that is more important, certainly, than the kind of practitional and theological differences that divide denominations. Um, so that's the sort of experiential thing. As as to why wouldn't that experience um, sort of rule out any distinction between denominations and practices. I think in one sense it, it's quite good that there are different expressions of one's uh, commitment to Christ for different um, personality types, different cultures, uh, and so on, as long as those don't um, override the, the, the core it, commitment. It's an interesting question, I suppose, that... It, it, in a sense, the phrase relationship with Jesus Christ is not one you necessarily find actually in the pages of the New Testament. Mm. It, it's a somewhat newfangled phrase <laughs> of, of the 20th century almost. And um, I, I don't know, is, is the, the, the concept that the evangelical church has come up with of a relationship with Jesus Christ one that we need to maybe ask, well, what, what does that actually entail? Does it mean that if I think I can hear Jesus talking to me, then that's, that's definitely God speaking to me? Uh, well, yeah, one would certainly want to, to ask careful questions about that. It certainly, I think it is a biblical uh, image when you look at images like, um, you know, I knock at the door and whoever opens the door, I'll come in and, and, and sup, have, have fellowship, table mm. fellowship from the, that, that culture with them. Um, but it's not the only image that we have of our... Uh, the nature of our relationship with Christ. Um, I think particularly of, of Christ saying, you know, take my yoke upon you, um, a treat uh, Jesus as, as our rabbi, as it were. We are his uh, disciples who are learning from him um, how to uh, live our relationship with God um, through our relationship with him. Um, and so that it, this relationship with Christ has to in, include the, the mind, uh, just as much as the, the heart and what you actually um, decide to do with your life uh, and things. It is a whole kind of holistic uh, thing going on there. Now, from your point of view, um, Charlie, I get the feeling that you feel that if, if this were really happening in people's lives, there should be some objective evidence, and that would be the fact that everyone really actually thought the same thing about God and Christianity and Jesus. Is, is that essentially where you're coming from? It does seem like if, if there is... Um, if there's a supernatural intervention taking place in the lives of believers, and even a fraction of those who um, identify as Christians in the world, mm. it does seem like there should be some objective way of, you know, there, there should be, this should make some kind of tangible difference. Um, you know, mm. supernatural 
the supernatural doesn't have to leave evidence behind, but you would think that it would, um, if especially if a spiritual transformation is taking place to the point that we're yeah. calling people new creations. Yeah. And such that, you know, if you, if you went into a room full of people, um, a third of whom were Christians and two-thirds of whom were not, there should be something that would be able to tell an objective person that, you know, there's an indicator that these people are Christians. And these are not, other than just behavior or dogma. I mean, other than, you know, uh, uh, behavior that's associated with certain dogma. Uh, well, there I think we, we start running into some difficulties because um, I, I think the, you know, Christian dogma is, is a summation of um, the beliefs of, of what's true. Um, and... Uh, Christians on the basis of believing that certain things are true make certain decisions and commitments in their life which tend to issue in them behaving in certain ways. But if you're going to rule out of assessing whether or not Christianity makes any difference in their lives, you're going to bracket out what they, A, believe to be true about the reality or, B, how they consequently decide to behave Um it, it seems you're sort of excluding what one might think would be rather a large part of the relevant data from uh, to, that would go into answering that question that the Christians do, uh, insofar as they're being consistent with their Christian commitments, behave in certain ways because of what they believe, surely. Well, and this is one reason that I go to, to the, the question of, of, you know, shouldn't this be creating a um, uh, some sort of synchronicity between Christians that would be relatively obvious. The problem is that if you look at behavior and you, and you look at actions that are based on behavior, how would, you, how would you distinguish someone being a Christian from any other religion? You know, if, if we know, you know, we could identify a group of Muslims in a room um, based on certain behaviors. Um, what would then make Christianity different than another religion? Well, it would be if there's a relationship that's taking place at a supernatural mm -hmm. level with a person, uh, in common, especially a very powerful, omniscient person who's, who knows everyone at a very deep level, it would seem like mm -hmm. this should have a harmonizing impact um, on the thinking of those people um, that, that would go beyond just beliefs. Yeah, well, here you, I mean, you can, of course, start looking at some of the sociological and sort of health research. There's been a, a number of wide-ranging studies on the psychology of believers and health outcomes and correlations, say, between um, Christian commitment as measured by regular church attendance and life expectancy or levels of depression in the population and so on. Um, and there's a lot of those kind of studies out there, um, most of which show interesting positive correlations between um, Christian religious belief and um, lower levels of depression, quicker recovery rates from illnesses, low, uh, longevity, um, and so on. Um, so there are certainly... Um, sorry? No, I, well, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I, don't those studies... Isn't that true of all religious belief, though? You know, sincere and fervent religious belief um, does have a comforting effect and an effect that way on, on health. Um, yeah, I think we're not just looking at the difference mm. between belief and unbelief, but Christianity and other beliefs. 
Yeah, I, I, I think part of the, the it's almost a sort of more research needed area because part of the difficulty is that I think a lot of this kind of research has been conducted, for example, in America, where a majority of the population who are religious are Christian. Um, and so it's it may be difficult to, to tease apart and, and to get some of those finer grained um, answers um, at a sort of ob- objective study level. And it's, you either have that, which maybe we don't have sufficient data yet, or it's a, an anecdotal um, personal level of, of people who, you know, obviously there mm. are plenty of Christians who would anecdotally say, crisis, my, my perceived relationship with Christ has made a huge difference to my life. Mm. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> a classic example, though, you know, of, of what um, maybe Charlie's talking about is that um, a Mormon will, will very often claim, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, and mm. will say, as far as they can see, there's no difference in my relationship with Jesus Christ from you. Peter, uh, mm. Protestant, you know, mm-hmm. evangelical Peter. Um, and now, are you prepared to accept the claim of the Mormon that they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, even though there are obviously some fundamental doctrinal differences and that sort of thing? Uh, or do mm. you say, no, relationships with Jesus Christ only count as relationships with Jesus Christ if you are, are subscribing to yeah. the correct doctrines <laughs> about Jesus? That's right. I, I, I think the former, because I, I think it makes... You can certainly... Uh, Two people can be related to the same reality, even though they have slightly different ways of of, of understanding that reality. And can one of them be wrong about their understanding? That's right. One, one could be wrong, one could be right, or both could be wrong about the understanding, uh, and yet you relate to it. I mean, uh, uh, this goes for anything in life, doesn't it? I mean, uh, scientists down the years have had all sorts of different conceptions of how the laws of nature actually work, and yet all of them have been relating to and studying the same nature and being living in that same nature. So you can certainly have a, a relationship with Christ without uh, having uh, 100% true beliefs about uh, Christ, and uh, that was certainly followed. But but even there, when you're raising other religions, if some you would make a big contrast with, because uh, from the Muslim context, having had our last call in Nazam, uh, would certainly uh, a Muslim context would say that they don't have that, uh, a personal uh, interrelationship with with God. That would uh, be a sort of blasphemous thing to to claim God is is meant to be much more sort of over and above and, and distant from the in, individual, in, mm, uh, mm. unlike the way in which he comes close to the individual, lives within the individual by his Holy Spirit within the Christian tradition. So it's not it's not true to claim that all religious traditions claim the same kind of religious experience. Charlie, I'm afraid we're out of time, which is a great pity because we could, again, like the last caller, make a whole show out of this, I'm sure. Any mm. final thought you'd, you want to leave us with, Charlie? Um, no, just uh, I, I appreciated the, uh, uh, the chance to come on. Justin, your last uh, assistance there with my question is one of the reasons that I enjoy your show. Um, and Peter, I um, uh, look forward to reading the rest of your book. I've skimmed part of it. Um, it, it looks interesting. We disagree in some areas, mm. um, obviously, um, but I think it's going to be sure. an interesting read. Great. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Charlie, Skepticism Examiner from Maine in the USA. Uh, and uh, check him out on the Premier community, as I say, a regular contributor to the unbelievable group there, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. Um, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. So I look forward to, to interacting with you. Perhaps you've got thoughts on today's show. You can do it via those forums. You can uh, also do it via email. And we'll be hearing some of your feedback to uh, last week's show with Peter and indeed the show before that with William Lane Craig uh, towards the 
end of today's programme. Email me, unbelievable, at premier.org.uk. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, uh, we've got our final caller coming on the line in just a moment's time. Just a reminder, though, that uh, Peter S. Williams uh, is uh, part of the lineup of the Reasonable Faith Tour. He's actually going to be joining Bill uh, for an exciting debate at the Cambridge Union uh, as part of the tour. Uh, not av- available, unfortunately, just to the regular plebeians and public. It's, uh, you have to be part of the Cambridge Union, uh, 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 which usually involves being a student of Cambridge University, to go along to that. But I'm sure the recording and uh, all the rest of it will become available in due course. Exciting stuff, that, isn't yeah, it? Uh, sort of last-minute addition to the, to the tour schedule yeah. for Bill. But that'll make it... Four, four debates in 10 days or something. Yes, we're uh, really packing, <laughs> packing it in from the, the poor chap. We, yeah. we are making, yeah, we're, we're certainly working hard while he's over here. But uh, more details on the tour and especially the, the first debate of the uh, the tour with me um, at Westminster Central Hall. Uh, he'll be opposite Stephen Law there. Uh, premier.org.uk slash Craig. Also, that uh, fantastic Be Thinking Day conference in London is mm. something you I'm sure will want to get along to if, if you're interested in, in matters apologetic and theological. Um, that's at uh, Westminster Chapel on Saturday the 22nd of October premier.org.uk slash Craig okay um, on the line now again we're going across the pond to Canada Mark Maney is on the line from British Columbia in Canada Mark thank you for joining me today well thank you so much and thank you for getting my last name right it's like one out of a ten chance okay Maney is the correct I was going to say have I pronounced that correctly but I'm glad I did I, m- yeah, mine is even right. even less commonly w- rightly pronounced. I'm afraid it's usually oh. Brearley that people come up oh. with. <laughs> I, yeah, I can I can understand that. Yeah. Now, Mark, we've had uh, already uh, a Muslim and an atheist contributing to the program, but you're a Christian. Uh, your question is on whether Jesus could be seen as a failed apocalyptic prophet, given the words he says in Matthew 24 about this generation not passing away before they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with glory. So, go ahead. Sure. So, so I'll try. I'll try to be quick, because I know time is short. Um, the basically um, the question is going to have to deal with the all of it discourse. Uh, so, where Jesus is given sort of his little apocalypse, and uh, and what what you have here is that you know most people recognize that the eschatological idioms that Jesus uses in the all of it discourse have been carried over from the earlier prophets, in which the promised events, for example, the moon turning the blood, the Lord's coming on the clouds, etc., did not happen literally. Uh, rather, the, this language is from the Old Testament prophets, and Jesus is prophesying using the language of the Old Testament prophetic tradition, and because his audience would have recognized it as such, and then his audience would also have had no reason to think that Jesus was using the imagery in a way that was divorced from the, the greater context and traditions behind those Old Testament passages and idioms. And, and specifically, the, the source text for many of Jesus' apocalyptic language was our Isaiah 13 to 14 with Babylon and Joel 2 and Ezekiel 32 with Egypt and stuff. And they, they are all use those prophetic metaphors, such as the stars falling from the sky, to describe God's judgment. But a key thing to take away from those passages uh, is that in each case, the recipient of the judgment was a foreign power of oppression. 
And it seems quite clear then that what Jesus was saying was that God would use Rome to sack Jerusalem for the shortcomings of his own covenant people, the Jews, but that as described again and again and again in the Old Testament prophets, God would then turn around and send judgment upon his own instrument of judgment, which in this case would be the Roman Empire. And so when we look at, in particular, Luke 21, 24 and the parallel verses, it seems like Jesus is saying that after the Gentiles, in this context Rome, have trampled Jerusalem, Jesus will come back and judge them following the destruction of Jerusalem. But the problem is, is that while Rome did destroy Jerusalem within the generation, Rome did not really experience judgment itself, at least not until many centuries after that generation had passed away, and definitely not in the way Jesus predicted. And yet the text emphasizes that the judgment will come immediately after the destruction the destruction, uh, according to Matthew 24:29, and strongly applied in Luke and mm. in Mark. So, so one question. So the question I would have would be, how would one reconcile this? Because basically, it seems like Jesus is saying Rome's time is up, and yet it wasn't. So, 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 so wrong, it, it, or, or it's, how should we approach that? it's that whole area of, of did Jesus, you know, fail to prophesy correctly in this instance? Was he a failed um, sort of apocalyptic prophet in that sense? Um, did he get it wrong in uh, the Olivet Discourse? We've done actually a program that very much touches on this area um, in the past uh, where we took, looked at uh, different uh, interpretations mm. of the, that particular passage, um, uh, dispensational, preterist, mm. and uh, uh, sort of uh, sort of approaches to it. But Peter, wh- where do yeah. you come from on, on this whole area? Well, I, I'm a philosopher and not <laughs> a theologian or a biblical scholar, so let me preface uh, my mea culpa there. Uh, I think my reading of, of this kind of issue has been very influenced by reading F.F. Um, F. Bruce, a biblical scholar, and particularly his book, The Hard Sayings of Jesus, Uh, in which he argues that there is very much a distinction within uh, what Jesus says. And you get it in in all the synoptic uh, Gospels, Mark, Matthew and Luke. And uh, Matthew and Luke obviously putting their kind of spin on Mark being the the earliest, um, perhaps clearest one on this. But Bruce argues that there's a distinction between um, the immediate uh, destruction of the temple uh, kind of prophecies and the more long-term uh, end of days, coming of the Son of Man in judgment kind of prophecies. Um, so in uh, Matthew uh, 24, for example, uh, Jesus says about not one stone being left on, an, on another of the temple. The disciples t- say, tell us, they say, uh, in verse 3, uh, when this will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So there's this the, mm. the temple stones not being left on one another, and then a, an additional question about the, the signs of the end uh, of the age. And I think it's very important to read these passages in the context of other verses that make it very clear that Jesus said that even he, as the Son of Man, didn't know when the when the end of days would specifically come. Um, uh, so you even get in, in Luke 21, 8, for example, um, uh, Jesus saying, watch out that you're not deceived. Many will come in my name claiming I'm here and the time is near. Do not follow them. Um, so he's saying, that, you know, there are some things that I'm prophesying now, but but don't be deceived mm. about the timing of... of so you're, you're, you're happy with the idea that Jesus was specifically prophesying the fall of the temple, uh, Jerusalem, in AD 70, yes. as, as happened. Yeah. But, uh, but that, that he was not specific in when the final, as it were, 
judgment. That's right. I think we, we, we do, and in a lot of Jewish prophecy, get this what's sometimes called telescoping of, of the, the present and the far far future, and they're kind of somewhat muddled in together, and you have to, to, to tease them apart. But I think there are, there are indications in the text here of the need to tease those apart. Uh, Bruce knows more about the Greek language and refers to let, that, which let, I can't. Let, but let, Let's uh, come back to Mark. Mark, yeah. is this a kind of um, way of looking at it that you've come across before? Uh, yeah, I, I have a question about the, the no one knows the, the hour uh, clause. And, and I wonder if, if maybe that in, in this case, that, that when he says that, that the emphasis remains on the imminence of the coming of, of the Son of Man and that the exhortation is to remain alert because the Son of Man yeah. can come at any minute. Yes. Uh, and, that, uh, and that, you know, and you also see that Luke omits the phrase and replaces it with the exhortation to, to be on guard so that the day does not catch you unexpectedly. Mm. And so in the same way, the declaration that no one knows the day or hour is not in its proper context a declaration that the end might potentially come at some indefinite time in the distant future, 10,000 years from now or something, but, but rather the verse just prior to it seems to make it clear that all of this will happen within the generation of Jesus' immediate disciples. So, so that really the phrase, no one knows the day or hour, is, is more to encourage the disciples to stay faithful precisely because the end is imminent, and so, and so I just wonder, mm. maybe what, what you would have mm. to say about that. Well, I think I still I still read it in the leaving open the the final end times, the final judgment as as not being pinned down in, in terms of, of of knowledge that we have. Do, do you take the view that I think people like N.T. Wright take mm. that 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 phrase about within the gener this generation it refers to this in sort of as it were. Um, pre-judgment, you might call it, yes. of, of the fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem and the temple uh, and so on. Uh, I mean, you also have, for example, Jesus' parable of the, the thief in the night. Um, it's a non-specific but kind of but live every day as if mm. he were coming back. And I don't think you could kind of infer one way or the other necessarily from that. But let, let me make a, another uh, point as well. Um, this is famously where Jesus um, has the sign of the fig tree um, and he he talks about the various signs of of the coming destruction of of Jerusalem and the temple and so on. And he references the fig tree and sort of say, you know, you know, when you start seeing buds that summer is on the way. So look out for the signs and be ready to flee Jerusalem when the horrors happen and so on. And he says, you know, that summer is coming. Now, so summer is the, the midpoint of the year, not the end of the year, not the not the the end of of the the the, the cycle. But, but but summer, this particularly sort of important event uh, is mm. coming, and he he seems in the passage to make a, quite a clear distinction between this immediate sort of apocalypse, as it were, that you should be looking out for the signs of because you can spot it in advance and, and get away from it, and the the ultimate um, apocalypse if you like, uh, for which he says, uh, it's not that you have to be you know, carefully looking for the signs and following this person or that person who says, no, I'm, I'm him or, or it, the time is going to be now. But he says it will be obvious to everyone, like lightning in the sky. So there's a, a sort of non-obvious apocalypse and an obvious mm. apocalypse. And they can't be one and the same apocalypse. It can't mm. be both obvious mm. and non-obvious, surely. So I think that's another indication okay. from the passage that there's a distinction yeah. here. I'm afraid we're out of time, Mark, and I wish we, we had more. But uh, thank you very much for uh, getting up early where you are to, uh, to, to interact with us today. Blessings upon you, sir. Well, uh, yeah, thank you so much, and it's been, uh, it's been such a privilege to talk to such a 
a brilliant uh, Christian philosopher. And well, so I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Mark, bless you. Thank you for coming on the line. That's, uh, that's Mark over in British Columbia in Canada. Uh, we've been talking about Understanding Jesus, the new book by Peter S. Williams today. Well, we haven't actually talked that much about the book. We've sort of taken a variety of questions that relate to the book and, yeah. and uh, various parts of what we've been talking about you can read in more detail in the book. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll finish talking about the book in a moment's time on the other side of a short break. Uh, unbelievable with me, Justin Brawley, is what you're listening to right now through till four o'clock this afternoon here on Premier Christian Radio. Also online at premier.org.uk slash unbelievable join me again in just a moment's time well welcome back to unbelievable this saturday afternoon i'm justin briley your host uh, up until four o'clock this afternoon don't forget this podcast available at premier.org.uk slash unbelievable uh, that's the place also where you can click through to find out more details about the reasonable faith tour just three weeks away now uh, just over three weeks away starts on monday the 17th of october at westminster central hall i'll be hosting the debate that kicks off the tour between stephen law an atheist philosopher and william lane craig uh, and uh, don't forget the Be Thinking National Apologetics Day Conference comes up uh, the following Saturday. So that's essentially four weeks today on uh, Saturday, the 22nd of October. And I hope you can get along if you're interested in theology, uh, philosophy, uh, history, um, apologetics generally. There are some fantastic speakers. And we're going to be having a look ahead to that on next week's program. And uh, you'll be hearing from people like Peter J. Williams, John Lennox, uh, William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas uh, as we uh, kind of have a little taster and some questions coming in from listeners uh, on various aspects of the types of topics that they'll be touching on at that conference. So if you haven't already booked in, do go ahead and uh, and book in for the uh, National Apologetics Day Conference in London, Westminster Chapel, from uh, 9.30 in the morning through till uh, 4 o'clock, I think. And um, that's available at premier.org.uk slash Craig. Okay, back to the end of today's programme. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. And uh, we've been talking today to Peter S. Williams, uh, second show where Peter's joined us uh, to talk about his book on this occasion, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. You can get it via Paternoster, that's the publisher. Uh, it's online, uh, you can find it at Amazon, and uh, we're putting a link up to it uh, from the unbelievable webpage premier.org.uk slash unbelievable if you want to find out more thank you very much peter for being with me today and taking a variety of of very interesting questions um uh peter when it comes to understanding jesus Mm. uh (laughs) in the bigger sense than just your book Mm. um what is the best way that someone can get into sort of knowing jesus understanding jesus i mean uh, Mm. obviously anyone could read your book whether they're from a believing or skeptical point of view and and be very interested in the things you have to say and that kind of thing uh but but i mean can you fully understand jesus without in a sense having that experiential aspect that we kind of touched on in the the second caller today Mm. well as a christian i think i I, i'm on about to say no um i don't think any human can can have a comprehensive understanding of god or of christ but certainly the most fulsome understanding that we can have uh it, it culminates in a personal relationship uh with god through christ that that uh, was the the heart of the message that that he brought um 
my way into the book is to is to look at Jesus's self understanding, you know, his understanding of what spirituality was, and his understanding of what role he thought he should be playing in our spirituality. Mm. Uh, and then I give these five ways, five arguments for. I was going to say, is that a play on the sort of Aquinas's uh, five? ways yeah, uh, um, for, for the proofs for God. Yeah, Thomas Aquinas, a uh, famous medieval uh, philosopher, theologian, um, had his five ways, five arguments for belief in mm. God. And I look at what I think are the five arguments that Jesus and his immediate disciples gave for thinking that Jesus' self-understanding uh, was correct. Um, and uh, the final one of those five ways is is religious experience, is actually putting your faith in Christ, taking his yoke upon you and trying to live life the way um, that he said it should be lived with, with him playing the role in, in your spirituality that he said that he should play. Fascinating stuff. Um, and if you want to find out what the other four are, then you'll need to go and buy the book. <laughs> and, uh, and I do recommend it to you. Uh, and indeed, uh, I'm sure you might want to pass it on to friends who have questions about the person of Jesus. So, I mean, it really does cover a wide range of stuff here because you're, as it were, synthesizing, I think, quite a lot of different yes, streams of, right. of scholarship yeah. Into, yeah. into one book, philosophy, historiography, mm. um, and, and, you know, theology. Yeah. So lots of things coming together. Yeah. Is this it's, sort a, of, it's a very sort of interdisciplinary mm. uh, study, as it were, trying to take a rounded uh, view and and give the give the reader enough information, sort of concepts, to to help them make up their own mind. It's not a book in which you say, "Here's what I think and, and why I think it," and now you've got to agree with me. Mm. It's rather here's where you know there's a range of places people might be coming at this from, and here's um, sort of some data, and you keep track as the reader of how that is affecting your view of Jesus, your understanding of Jesus, as you make your way through the book. Mm, fantastic. Well, as I say, uh, available now, and uh, you find the link with the unbelievable webpage um and look forward to seeing you uh later on for the bill craig tour as well yeah. uh peter um exciting stuff you're going to be uh, with bill for one particular debate that got added as we said earlier at late notice uh, to the to the bill uh, <laughs> um but we to bill's, bill. to bill's yeah. bill it got it got added um but this is one going on at the cambridge union and so so it's open to people who are members of the cambridge union um i think the title is uh, along the lines that they do it for the, in that particular scenario this mm. house yeah believes that uh, belief in god is not, not a delusion, delusion something like that, that yeah. and and it won't be the normal sort of format that we often see bill in of a sort mm. of uh, just two person because you'll be there presenting right. alongside yeah. him two people on each side and um, they all get to make one one speech each uh, and then there are lots of questions from the floor and he'll be opposite you and bill uh, I, be- I believe, uh, I'm not 100% sure it's nailed down yet, but I believe it's uh, Arif Ahmed and uh, Andrew Copston from, the, Copson, uh, yes. Copson from the British Humanist Association. Yes, and Arif Ahmed uh, has, of course, debated Bill, I think, in the yes, past. Yes, once before. Uh, yeah. uh, on, the, um, uh, on, on the existence of God. So uh, uh, that will be one to watch out for. And if you are do happen to have the privilege of being able to attend that debate, uh, why not try and get along to it in Cambridge as part of the tour? But um, you can attend any of the other three debates that Bill is doing. Uh, they're open to the public and uh, they're happening in three different locations around the country. So whether you're listening in the southeast, London, etc., where you might want to come along to the opening debate on Monday the 17th of October uh, with Stephen Law, that's happening at uh, Westminster Central Hall. But there's also a debate going on in Birmingham with uh, atheist philosophy professor Peter Milliken. 
Um, that's a little bit later on in the week. And uh, then finally, the talk concludes with a debate against uh, an old adversary, Peter Atkins, uh, who will be debating with Bill in Manchester on the existence of God. So uh, hopefully wherever you are in the country, you'll be somewhere within striking distance of one of those debates. And don't forget a number of lectures and things going on at the same time uh, in, in various parts of the country and the, the big Apologetics Day conference on the Saturday of that week. So all the details, as I've mentioned many times before, <laughs> available premier.org.uk slash Craig for the schedule and uh, for booking your tickets in for that. In the meantime, Peter, thank you very much for joining us for two weeks in a row. Thank you very much. Great to have had you with me. And if you want to interact with anything you've heard on today's programme, then do get in touch. I'll be giving out the ways to do that again in a moment's time and we'll be hearing some of your feedback from the past week. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, thanks again to Peter S. Williams for being my guest on today and uh, last week's programme. Let's go to, in a moment, some of your feedback to last week's programme when Peter was engaging with Jeff Crocker, uh, an atheist and author of the book um, uh, Can an Atheist Believe in Meaning? Well, actually, uh, An Enlightened Philosophy was the name of the book. That was the subtitle. But uh, they had a very interesting discussion, lots of comments on it here in front of me. Just uh, to update you, though, that if you want some flyers for the forthcoming Reasonable Faith Tour, uh, especially, I'm thinking, London events, I can I can supply you with some fl- flyers for London events if you're um, in a church or you'd like to hand some out to friends and relatives and things uh, for, the, for the debate on the 17th and the Apologetics Day Conference. I've got some spare flyers. Uh, just email me, unbelievable at premier.org.uk and I'm happy to post some out in the coming week to you uh, uh, trying to get the message out far and wide and one of the ways that I've uh, done that uh, is uh, well I hope at least that it's going to go out in their in, in their next podcast uh, I uh, offered a, a little report on the whole issue of Christians debate and the story behind the tour uh, to the pod delusion if you don't listen well worth a listen uh, that's a British made podcast uh, from a sort of atheist stable and they have all kinds of issues actually on the show um, but uh, uh, obviously a play on the words the god delusion the pod delusion uh, so i hope that uh, a number of atheists and skeptics alongside those who listen to this show will be getting news of the tour and the uh, the debates that are happening don't forget also a facebook page for the tour if you want to um like that go ahead it's um facebook.com slash reasonable faith tour and you can click onto the events on that page and and sort of see all the events that are going on and and let us know that you're coming along share them with friends and that sort of thing as well as getting the updates on the page uh, that uh, that i place there um so uh, lots of ways to to get involved in the tour um as the uh, final few weeks approach before a kickoff uh, premier.org.uk slash craig though for going to the booking page um, and we'd love to get you booked in uh, in advance of the tour, if possible. Uh, so uh, that's uh, that, that's all very exciting. Um, another exciting thing that I played out for the first time last week was a little advert for the Unbelievable DVD. We've got a sort of a, a different one, a secondary one. Uh, and I wonder if you can tell who this chap is. God gave us minds. I never accept that there's anyone in this world who cannot think. You need to start using what you've got on in your head. You need to start really living out your Christian faith. Over nine hours of teaching, five key speakers, all on one DVD. Unbelievable. The conference. Get honest answers to tough questions at premier.org.uk slash DVD.
Yes, for the uh, keen-eared among you, that was David Robertson in another version of that advert. Very dramatic, isn't it? And again, uh, thanks to Brad for producing those two adverts for for the conference. Um, It's available now on DVD. Uh, They're right here in the office and we can ship them out to you. Um, So if you'd like to order your Unbelievable The Conference DVD, do uh, do check out that web page for ordering uh, premier.org.uk slash dvd um and so the the uh, emails that have been coming in uh these are um, a lot of them on on that show of last week uh peter s williams and jeff crocker um can an atheist believe in meaning we were asking mike ranieri says um i can understand why jeff crocker gave up the faith he's completely unable to deal with the fact that christians can disagree on interpretations of scripture and that simple existence of disagreement proves that there are no moral absolutes what defective thinking if you applied that logic consistently you couldn't make a decision on anything or maybe he's consistent because he's a radical relativist and the only absolutes are the ones he makes up for himself can he not see the problems that will result from each individual in the world autonomously living by their own subjective moral absolutes yes people would find and group with others who agree with themselves but what that ultimately engenders is a morality of the strong the rich and the powerful the strict darwinians out there may stand up and take a bow uh, thank you very much. Um, you say, P.S., when you asked him, how do you tell Hitler he's wrong? His main answer was, well, God didn't do anything about the Holocaust. Even if God could be proven a despot, that's not an answer. A typical response from atheists unable to deal with direct questions. Mike in combative mood there. Lindley in Sheffield is uh, an agnostic who listens to the show and says, wanted to say I thoroughly enjoy the show with uh, Peter Williams and Jeff Crocker honestly say it's one of the best ones i've heard in a long time both your speakers had some really interesting points to make and i found jeff's approach to religion through myth astoundingly refreshing in this time of blunt and dismissive anti-religion and i may well try and get hold of his book i thought it was especially brave of jeff to describe human emotions and values as metaphysical or spiritual aspect to our existence that said i think that in the second part of the show when the issue of whether jeff's values were grounded was raised i wasn't surprised to hear jeff being thoroughly trounced by peter Jeff had to admit that he was ultimately a relativist and it would have to bid good luck to those people who want to follow Stalin's view of humanity. The question that should have been asked of Jeff was how he would react if suddenly he had to live with the consequences of these Stalinists. Would he attempt to resist them? And if so, on what moral basis if our values are all individual? Jeff's meaning has no more power than the Stalinist. As an agnostic, I have yet to hear an adequate atheistic response to the position of Nietzsche or Sartre. Um, So because of this, Jeff's approach to religion as myth ultimately reduces it to an intellectual exercise. Fun to explore, but still void of any substance that, as Peter pointed out, directs us to what should or ought to be. Thank you very much. Uh, Reginald, not so uh, impressed with the uh, performance of our Christian guest last week, Peter S. Williams. But he writes that uh, the atheist speaker is a good speaker, but that's all. He likes the sound of his voice and continually avoids the question of why as if that concept were alien to his stream of consciousness. Your atheist speaker seems to explain his non-belief on the grounds of the problem of evil. This, however, does not explain the existence of evil, per se, without a god. How does atheistic evolution explain this evil? Why Then why does atheistic evolution produce this alien concept of evil, which most philosophical atheists deny even exists? Your atheist speaks in terms of a meaningless, random evolutionary process, yet concedes that evil is a reality. Then, whence cometh evil, to quote St. Augustine. Um, uh, so thank you very much, Reginald. Um, 
This is Willem, who says, after listening to the show、uh, and expecting a negative, apologetic approach, I was disappointed in that expectation, though I thought it was still a good show.、Um, you go through various aspects of the show,、uh, the things that came up, and, and wanted to give your points on them.、Uh, atonement and forgiveness. Your guest mentioned that he felt Christianity was false because it had, according to him, an unsophisticated view of forgiveness.、Uh, before going into that, I wonder if it was the only reason for rejecting the notion of God, seeing as he's an atheist. It could very well still be true that God exists, even if we granted that objection. But secondly, there are many understandings concerning the atonement and how the process of forgiveness is applied to us. And I think it's unwarranted to reject Christianity based on one particular understanding of it.、Um, you also go on to say that、uh, you were disappointed that、uh, Peter Williams didn't clearly distinguish objective from absolute morality. What your atheist guest attempted to convey with absolute is that one would expect everyone to hold the same moral code. Well, that's obviously not the case. And then the familiar confusion between epistemology, i.e., how we come to know something, and ontology, the foundation of something, arises. But as your atheist guest, though surprisingly, affirmed he has no foundation or ontology for his moral judgments. And to answer his question about the Holocaust, yes, without a firm ontology. I.e., God. There is absolutely nothing wrong with Holocaust. It seems right in line with nature. And I'll just go to one of your other、um, comments. You say、uh, Jeff Crocker mentioned the overwhelming amount of arguments against God. I'd really love to see those arguments. I've studied philosophy for years, and I've heard almost all the podcasts from Unbelievable, and I've only seen about four general types of arguments, all of which, in the end, are, to my mind. Unconvincing. Thanks very much, Willem, for、uh, your getting in touch. In regard to today's program,、uh, we've got、um, more of your emails、uh, on that subject.、Uh, no, no, we're going to move on actually to some others.、Um, Joshua, thank you for getting in touch.、Um, Joshua is out in Taiwan. Been a listener for a while now, you say, and I really enjoy the shows, especially the debates and the Grilla Christian format. So I hope you enjoyed today's show, Joshua. Um, the strange fact that I listen so far away is only balanced by my unusual apologetic method: cartoons with a dash of satire.、Uh, while listening to your recent interview with William Lane Craig, this was the concept that came to mind, and you've given me a web address,、uh, uh, and your blog is noapologiesallowed.wordpress.com, and it's it's a cartoon of、uh, William Lane Craig and the empty chair with a reserved for Dawkins sign on it, and、uh, the subtitle is. Uh, the something something along the lines of if I remember the, the picture,、uh, it's, it's strange that an empty chair says an awful lot or something like that. But I've、uh, put the picture up on the、um, unbelievable Facebook page. So if you want to check it out, go to、uh, go to that、uh, facebook dot com slash unbelievable jb.、Um, thank you very much for that. You also wanted to say、um, you've listened to many shows、um, recently. There have been a couple of Christian guests. Who defended Christianity, and in my opinion, did more harm than good. But I do remember the good-natured humour and genuineness of a guest you had back on in 2007, named David Marshall. He's written several books, and one on the subject of atheism, the truth behind the new atheism. Please get him back on. He has the ability to confront the opposition, ask and answer tough questions, and also be funny and genuine while doing those things.、Um, and if you go back and listen to that interview, you'll see what I mean. I do remember the interview, Joshua, and、um, I, I don't. I think David is always in the UK. He was at that time, but、um, perhaps if he is、uh, around now, we'll try and bring him back on. Thanks for the suggestion. How about Terry Nielsen? <laughs> 
in Canada. Uh, Terry, uh, interesting email from you. Theists versus theists, my new favorite, says Terry. I'm an atheist who's been listening to your show for a couple of months. I love to hear the struggle of theists to explain their beliefs in terms of logic, historicity, science, whatever. I thought the best way... The, I thought I thought this the best way to show the childishness of religion. You have selected the best of the best Christians, mostly, and they simply can't do it. What I'd love to hear is you picking a random Christian to tell us why believing in Jesus is any different than believing in the Easter bunny. Believe me when I say that Bill Craig is not who you'll come across. Almost any atheist can defend atheism with a simple, irrefutable, I don't know. But you would have to get really lucky to find the one in a billion Christian who uses logic, historicity or science to defend any aspect of religion. Well, just before I go on in this email, um, is, is the phrase I don't know from an atheist in any sense using logic, historicity or science to defend the point of view of atheism? Um, if if that does anything, surely it only suggests that they're an agnostic. They haven't bothered to think about it, possibly. But anyway continue reading uh, my new joy is listening to theists on your show debate their interpretations of scripture with each other it's hilarious jay and you've called him thomas but i think you mean jay smith simply had no defense against the muslim about whose scriptures are right the muslim just says it simply we have revelation all you have is jerry-rigged history biased councils picking and choosing which books go in the bible and he's right of course his evidence for revelation is equally weak as jay's idea that christians writing about christianity is testament to its truth and you go on to mention a few other shows of Christians versus Christians, which you think sort of sends, shows how daft the whole thing is. Um, well, thank you for your email, uh, Terry. I have to say I disagree with you on the issue of Jay Thomas and uh, Jay Thomas. That's that's what you wrote, Jay Smith, um, and the way he defends scriptures against Muslims. Um, I I think Jay does exactly what you've asked christians to do which is use logic historicity and evidence to show good reasons why the bible is historically defensible uh, as against possibly um what muslims believe about the quran so i, I obviously you know, it goes without saying i disagree with your email but thank you anyway for it um glad you're listening glad you're getting some fun out of the show <laughs> anyway uh finally uh back a few weeks ago still getting emails in in regard to rebecca bennett who came on as the former christian now an atheist uh telling her story and we sort of had a dialogue between her and sheridan voisey on um how to do dialogue with former ex-christians um Phil Church is Senior Lecturer in Biblical Studies at the School of Theology, Mission and Ministry in New Zealand. Um, so thanks for listening, Phil. You say, I've just finished listening to the dialogue with Rebecca Benich. I want to commend you and your studio guest and Rebecca for the gracious way in which the dialogue proceeded. There are a couple of questions I wish had been explored more deeply. Early on in the program, Rebecca said that part of her journey uh, out of Christianity was that she stopped believing in inerrancy. The good news is that many of us never started believing in inerrancy. I'm sure that there would have been much more to it than that, and I would have been interested to hear some more. For example, I'm interested to know when Rebecca stopped believing in the resurrection of Jesus and on what grounds. Secondly, she questioned Jesus' moral example, was unsure that she wanted to follow that. I wish that could have been explored more deeply. Rebecca spoke of the golden rule, for example, and then claimed that she observed it in the hope that people would do the same for her. But what if he what if they don't how does she then respond and moreover while the so-called golden rule often comes up on your program i'd be interested in a discussion of what leonard sweet calls the platinum rule jesus said that we were to love others as he had loved us 
and in the context in and in context that referred to him dying for us countless christians through the ages have done precisely that given up their lives for others with no expectation of any reciprocity they have done it simply because they have seen the example of jesus and heard him say come and die as bonhoeffer so eloquently put it uh, I would have been interested in Rebecca's response to this as a moral example. I suggest that it is considerably superior to her own. Uh, best wishes. I continue to enjoy listening to the podcast as I drive to and from work every day. Thanks, Philip. Thank you for all of your inputs, uh, for all those emails. Uh, if you want to get in touch, unbelievable is the uh, program and the uh, email address is unbelievable at premier.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter as well, at unbelievablejb is the tag, and uh, you can find us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash unbelievablejb, even. And, uh, of course, the Unbelievable webpage where all those links are available, this week's show, and many more things besides. Uh, That's www.premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. Well, next week on the show, let me tell you what's coming up. You're unbelievable. We're going to be looking ahead to the uh, Be Thinking National Apologetics Day Conference. Got some fabulous speakers on the bill there, uh, including Bill, uh, who is uh, William Lane Craig. He's, it's part of the Reasonable Faith Tour. He's going to be joined, though, by John Lennox, uh, who is a, a mathematics professor from Oxford and a Christian apologist. Uh, also, Gary Habermas from the States, expert on the resurrection. Uh, Peter J. Williams uh, from Tyndale House in Cambridge is going to be talking about the Old Testament and defending it against the attacks of the new atheists. So it'll be a fascinating conference. I hope you can join me next week when we sort of get a taster of it and uh, some of your questions as well. So uh, that's all to come, same time next week. Until then, have a great week. I'm Justin Briley. I'll see you next time. <laughs>